Welcome to the Queer SLP Podcast. We are two speech-language pathologists who identify with the LGBT plus community. On each episode, we'll highlight relevant queer issues and stories from our field. The Queer SLP Podcast's mission is to provide informative and pertinent content from proud and chatty SLPs. All right, we are ready to go. Okay. Hello, this is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie, and my pronouns are she, her. We have a special guest today on our next Proud Professional episode, all the way from Texas. Can you introduce yourself? Hello, all. My name is Maurice Goodwin. My pronouns are he, him. Yay! Hi! Hello, hello. Hey. We finally got out of the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the South. All righty. Should we just jump right in? Let's do it. Let's jump right in. Tell us about yourself, you know, everything from the beginning. And uh, Uh yeah, so go ahead. (laughs) Well, I'm currently in Houston, Texas. I'm a speech pathologist here at Houston Methodist Hospital and really love that work. I think my journey to speech pathology was long. I grew up in a small town, um, Reading, Pennsylvania which is in between like Harrisburg and Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I grew up in a (laughs) suburb of Reading. So (laughs) I grew up in the country. (laughs) Farm country. Like worked on a farm in high school, farm country. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Great time. So small high school, about 100 people graduating class, which was an interesting experience. One is a brown person living in that sort of environment. And that part of Pennsylvania is not common. So there was a few families. But then also I grew up in a pretty kind of fundamentalist, conservative household. My family was Pentecostal. We grew up kind of in a large Pentecostal church. So a lot of my childhood kind of shaped what I do professionally now. So my mother's a singer and a performer, and me and I have two older sisters are also singers and kind of grew up doing that in the church. And so a lot of my early adulthood was actually shaped by that experience. I graduated high school and went to a Christian college where I studied biblical studies and church music for a few years, thinking I was going to be a pastor. Wait. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, have <some laughs> I have some follow-up questions. I'll have some follow-up questions, but go ahead. Um, all this time, I mean, I think my story is similar to a lot of queer people in the church. Like, I knew that I was queer, and I think there were times, not I think, I know there were times where I tried to, like, come out and say something to other people. Those things did not go well. And that was highly discouraged, but it was kind of one of those, not an open secret, but definitely an open secret. And that like, as long as you are, you know, a practicing gay man, then you can be a part of the church and you can have all these things that you really like. I was also at a level where I was like performing a lot. And so I was touring and we were recording and I was working for a mega church at the time. And I felt like I wanted that stuff more than I wanted to be queer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that was kind of the sacrifice that I made. Yeah. I I was going to ask if you felt like you had to sacrifice one for the other, like if there was no in-between land. That's definitely how I felt. And what's wild, it's hard to kind of think about that time in my life without thinking about how vastly different my life is now. And to look back on that time, you know, it's easy to think almost glory days. Like I was doing a lot of really cool stuff and I had a lot of really cool experiences and got to travel a lot met a lot of really great people, but I was like really depressed for years of my life and extremely anxious and sad. How old were you at this time? 
Yeah, so I started kind of working at that level around 16 or 17. And then up until right before my 22nd birthday. So I was going to, you know, this Christian college and I was about 20 credits away from graduating and was outed by a friend for like a kind of something more than a friendship relationship that I was having with someone on campus. At this point, I hadn't even (laughs) actually acted on being a gay person. (laughs) But it, it was, was just, just that idea. <laughs> it was just that idea that like, oh, you're doing mm-hmm. something wrong and we know this about you, right? Okay. So that was a really tough time of my life. And there was a little bit of, you know, as long as you go to conversion therapy and do all the things that we want you to do, you can continue to have this. So I did that for a while because I didn't know that anything else was possible. I just couldn't see life outside of that. I also didn't have a lot of exposure to life outside of that. When you grow up in those environments, it's the only thing you see. It's the only thing you know. And my entire social circle was wrapped up in that. I did not have friends outside of that situation. So yeah, I had about 20 credits left and I went in and I was like, I can't do the conversion therapy thing anymore. And I can't do this version of my life. Yeah. And they were like, okay, you can go. I have a question just because I don't know. I'm just wondering what exactly conversion therapy entailed. I've heard of the term and I know basically that it's you know, trying to make yourself straight, but was it like praying or I've heard electroshock therapy? Like there's a range. Yeah. Sounds like it seems as if there is a range, and I think some of those things depend on the situation that you're in. And certainly I'm encouraged as we continue to move through time that those things are now becoming more and more taboo and even illegal in some instances, especially in minors. But I actually attended conversion therapy twice, once as a teenager, I was sixteen or seventeen. And I attempted to come out to my parents and they didn't know what to do, but send me to conversion therapy, like a camp, like one of those kind of pray the gay away camps. So that was a lot more like based Mm -hmm. on prayer and (laughs) just hoping I wasn't going to be gay. But that experience just turned out in me saying I wasn't gay anymore so I could go back home. It was a really terrible time of my life. Like when I think about that point, I think that was my more or less rock bottom, but I wasn't doing it to myself. But then when I was in college, I was older, right? I was 20, 21. I definitely was aware of what was going on. And I was aware of what I was sacrificing to do this thing, right? Like I felt like I could keep the college, I could almost finish my degrees, I could keep my friends and do this thing. I just had to make it through this time or this period. And that was more like counseling based. What was really crappy about it was none of it was private because of the position that I was in. I had signed contracts that, you know, my therapist could talk with the pastors and the churches that I were working with. It wasn't really a kind of a fair process, I I don't think for anyone. Especially not me. I've read a few books now on different people's experiences in conversion therapy. And I think I tend to be on the luckier end of things that I was able to keep a bit of perspective and was able to get out when I did and kind of go through the recovery process after that. It's crazy to think if you just finished those 20 credits, like where you'd be now. I know. Where would I be now? But I left the Christian college and I had a couple of weeks to find a school to go to. Because I didn't, I knew I wanted to continue going to school and I was like, I can do this thing and I'm good at music. So I called like every good music school on the East Coast and I was like, somebody take me. They were like, why are you leaving this school suddenly? And why are you failing all of your classes in your last semester? Because that's what happened when kind of it all went down. And I explained that to a lot of places and Shenandoah University, which is a Methodist college, Methodist University affiliated with United Methodist Church, took me in and said, you only have to do two years and we're so sorry this happened. And what was crazy is that like, Some of the people that changed my life easily the most on that campus were two lesbian pastors. 
you know, I came from one situation and immediately walked into a completely different one (laughs) (laughs) where I couldn't see beyond tomorrow. And they kind of gave me that idea of hope, right? Like things can be different. It doesn't have to be this way and you can enjoy life. Imagine that, right? Well, it sounds like you had one side of religion that's more strict and stringent. Um, And then you went to this other kind of part of religion where people are open and welcoming. Absolutely. kind of two sides of the same coin. And it happened within seems. like a matter of weeks. Like it just flipped over. And so that was probably the most transformative experience that I've been through, I think, as a young adult. And I think now I'm only 30 years old. And that happened when I was 22. On my 22nd birthday, I moved to Virginia to attend college there. Happy birthday. <laughs> Sounds like a good birthday. Probably also a scary birthday, <laughs> Very. right? Because you don't know. So did your family know about your sexuality at this point? Or was it kind of like, everybody gets to know now? No, I think it was definitely something that my parents had to come around to. I ended up doing an undergrad in music, but a lot of that work happened in that two years that I was in Virginia to the point where my parents, you know, actively celebrated my graduation and they've met all of the people that I've dated. And, you know, I've been home for Thanksgivings and Christmases and there's no dirty water there, I should say. And that that was a lot of work over a long time because forgiveness is tough. (laughs) A lot of counseling that I went to, I've been to therapy multiple times for multiple things that seem to always stem back to 22 years of feeling like repressed and that I couldn't be myself. But that is like the difficult work of being an adult and trying to do better. So I say all that to say I'm blessed to be in a situation now where thankfully I had all these experiences and I'm like a proud, very out, very open to myself and other people, adult. So you finish with a music degree. Yeah. How do we get to being an SLP? What happens there? Yeah, I knew that I was not that kind of musician. (laughs) I did not have a determination. I, at the time, didn't feel as though I was all that talented. (laughs) And I knew I wanted something else. So I got very lucky and connected with a few people that were pretty big in the voice world who... Actually, I'll tell this story. Kitty Vernalini is kind of what some might recognize as Mm -hmm. uh, a big deal in the voice world. And certainly when we think of resonant voice therapy, Kitty is that person. And I went to my first conference. This was in 2013 in May to early June. And Kitty, (laughs) we were sitting next to each other while someone was presenting. And they were talking about birdsong. And they pulled up something in Greek on the screen. And I'm sitting next to Kitty Vernalini. At this point, I didn't know who she was. And I start translating the Greek, as does she. Because I was studying biblical studies. And at the time, she was also getting her MDiv. And so we look at each other. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? (laughs) Then we started this conversation. She was like, I would love to hear more about you. And that night, before she was doing some like keynote talk, she spent like an hour with me oh. hearing about my life. And I just felt wow. the first time I was safe enough to just tell someone my story. And little did I know, it's Kitty Verlini, right. right? Like this person who, yeah. I mean, literally the vo- like changed the voice world for the better. And she, you know, looked me in the face and was like, let's make this happen. Mm-hmm. Let me do this thing alongside you. And she invited me up to Pittsburgh and I spent time with her. She introduced me to everyone at Pitt and the University of Pittsburgh Voice Center and That's kind of how it happened. So truly, when I talk about luck, it was luck. And I had some really awesome people kind of step in the way and advocate for me as a queer person, which was awesome. 
like the best homie hookup there ever has been. <laughs> so did you go to Pitt? Is that where you did? I did end up going to okay. Pitt. Yeah. Okay. So I went for the postback program mm-hmm. shortly after that. And I was like, I think I can do this voice health thing. You know, what's interesting is going to graduate school. They're like, you know, you have to learn everything. And I was a brat. I'm only going to do voice. <laughs> of course, you take like a three credit class in voice. If and that. that's it. Right? You have all these <laughs> right. If right. that. right? <laughs> Some people get those four Thursdays and that's about yeah. it. So I was like super excited to go to Pitt and had a lot of really wonderful experiences. I could have done one of many jobs as a speech pathologist. I really loved inpatient work. I actually really enjoyed early intervention, but I ended up getting lucky enough once again to get fellowship kind of specifically in voice and took off from there. That's pretty awesome because I remember in my grad program, they specifically said how voice was such a niche that you were not likely to get anything in it, if not for years. You know, and that you had to stumble upon it. So the fact that you were able to get your CF in it is pretty huge. That's yeah. pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah, I, th- I have had very few voice clients in my day. Yeah, we're, you know, as an early career kind of speech pathologist, being in a position where I was privileged enough to end up in that opportunity where I'm getting a CF, we're realizing that there's so much opportunity to continue educating and kind of share the wealth when it comes to training opportunities in the voice world. So hopefully we will get better at doing that because I think people think of terms like exclusive when they think of the voice world. And I would think we could do better at that. Oh, I said niche. You said exclusive. Same. <laughs> Yours is much more realistic. So yeah. So you did your CF, which was where? I was at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. And then? I ended up in Texas. Who would have thought? But I was really happy to end up in the practice. Oh, is it okay if I talk about like kind of what I do and at, relate that to kind of being a oh, queer person? For sure. One of the yeah. greatest things, and maybe I shouldn't have done this during an interview. At that point, so I, I was 28. I had finished uh, the CF in Wisconsin. I felt like, you know, I have this training and I want to live this life. I had interviewed at a few different voice centers. Um, Things did not end up working out. So I actually was jobless for like four or five months after my CF. And I had this interview down in Houston and I had heard good things about the laryngologist that I would be working with. Uh, His name is Apu Thekti. And we sat down we went to this place called the Barbecue Pit (laughs) for lunch on the very first day that I was there. And, you know, he's just talking about life. And I said, hey, I am very brown. I am very queer. I am not interested in being anything other than that at my workplace. And I was like, and I need to know that that works for you. Because if not, then I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And he was like extremely affirming of who I was and not just accepting. I, I think the term affirming is a better term, right? Like, oh my goodness, absolutely. You're welcome here. This is an asset to us and makes you who you are. And from that moment on, it's been kind of like a a beautiful story of us building a team and really setting an office culture where anyone can come and be who they desire to be or who they are and where they are. I feel like that's the biggest blessing of like my adult kind of work life. I get to be me in every area of what I do. So we kind of talked a little bit about what it's like to be an SLP for you and then What is it like not just being queer, but being a queer professional in Houston, Texas? Yeah, being a queer professional. I think I will keep saying this over and over again. I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in. I think kind of being at the hospital that I'm at, that's very open and affirming of having coworkers that are that way. 
we had joked briefly before we you know started the podcast that the voice world has to be one of the queerest subsections of speech pathology in existence and i can confirm people <laughs> come to the conferences it's a party yeah. i'm like the one that's taking everyone out to the gay bars so well all of those inappropriate things happen we <laughs> so what's it like I will also say, though, that I feel like I tend to be, <laughs> I describe myself as a bit of a brat because I just really know what, I at least have a vision of what I want my life to be like. And I try and be as intentional with that as possible. And so I knew that as a professional, I was not interested in being anything other than who I was. And so I had to be intentional about that. And that meant being intentional about where I worked and where I didn't work and what kind of groups I associate with and what groups I don't associate with. And I think now kind of being in the position that I'm at and feeling as great as I do in doing that, it's given me the opportunity to extend that to other people. Like what other minority professionals don't feel comfortable in their workplace and what can I do to actively make that a more accepting, open, great workplace, you know, that I get to feel that way. I have to recognize the privilege there is in being a male in the workplace and being in a subspecialty field where there's not many people that do what I do in a city of 5 million people, right? Like people know who we are, people know who I am. And so being conscious and aware of that and doing my best to extend that privilege to other people, I think is hopefully I'm trying to just like, you know, make a bit of a positive impact on the culture down here. So would you say you're like, you're kind of leading the chart? Is there a lot of visibility over there? Or are you kind of like it? In the speech pathology world? Let's go there and then go broader. So speech pathology, I think it's interesting. Houston is an interesting city because it is still the South. And there are, I think things are a bit more separated than in maybe some other cities that I've been in. And that it's like very private practice run. There are a few major hospital systems that have speech pathology teams. I don't think we're very well connected. I think we all know of each other. But definitely there is a queer <laughs> gay male culture of speech pathologists. I feel like we all <laughs> matched on Tinder in like the first two weeks that I was here. <laughs> so true. So, so we know who that. each other are. But our field definitely has ways in which we can continue to develop and certainly kind of across the state of Texas and, and in the South in general. I think Houston actually is a pretty progressive place. I actually met my boyfriend at a networking event for queer professionals. So that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that it's the same with your clients, that it's more open and affirming? Well, uh, I think that is and... also an interesting kind of thing about being in a subspecialty is you have people traveling from a long ways away, which means we get a lot of rural mm -hmm. Texas and Louisiana. Uh, and even at times we'll get Oklahoma, which is wild. Patients driving in and not everyone, you know, is as progressive. And we certainly get people wearing hats and shirts that would indicate that they think and believe other <laughs> differently than I do. And mm -hmm. I just continue to be myself. It doesn't actually come up all that often. I think a lot of my younger patients, I see, so given the nature of my job, I see a lot of singers, performers, actors, young people that are in the game. And it always inevitably comes up that I'm queer or they're queer. And so it's been a lot of fun kind of in those interactions because you just like let it drop and continue moving on. But I've brought up Damien at my job multiple times. I'll be like, yeah, me and my boyfriend, you know, for instance, we just moved. And so over the last week, I've been like, I'm just stressed. My patients are like, what's going on? It's like, you know, me and my boyfriend are moving. And it's just you say it and you move on. So that's been really nice. I've not had anything negative so far. I have a lot of patients that try and hook me up with their female identifying my people. My <laughs> Oh, please don't <laughs> <identify>. <laughs> um, for me, but. Do you think that as a gay man, 
that your experience is typical for just the LGBTQ community? Or do you find that like even just like lesbians versus, you know, trans individuals, like, is it harder? Or have you talked to anybody who says differently? I definitely think it's easier for me to exist in this world than a lot of other people. And I say that even as like a Black queer man, Mm -hmm. right? And understanding the intersections of those things, especially living in the South and, you know, being a professional (laughs) in a predominantly white field, there are certainly things there. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't look at other fields and don't say, where are the men? But in fact, I'm responding with, you know, where are, where are the women of color and where are, where's more queer and trans and non-gender or gender queer representation on our field, especially in the voice world. I mean, it is possible for me to love and enjoy what I do and be very, very disappointed with the way in which the voice world is handling a lot of the work that we do with trans and gender affirming voice work. It boggles my mind that we are still hosting conferences where there is zero or maybe one person who identifies as a part of a community that we are like talking about as if they can't talk for themselves. If that is really, really tough for me as a voice person, right? As someone who is invested in this field, as someone who does that work myself, with patients who come to us for that type of therapy and treatment, we have so much work to do. I recognize the privilege that I have in the work that I do. So now it's like, who else and how can we do this better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about that myself as someone who has, you know, is quote unquote in the voice world. Am I being loud enough? Right. Am I being vocal enough? Which means that you unfortunately are like ruffling feathers with people that you call colleagues. Mm-hmm. And people that you care about, people that you actively care about, and you see the good work they do, but you're like, this is not enough. Right. Not enough. You got to do more. Yeah. Yeah. A call to action. We always ask this question for everybody who joins because we call it our proud professional segment. So Yay. if you had to put into your own words what it means to you to be a proud professional, what does that look like? Oh, this is hard. Like, it is <laughs> professional. You know, I think I can answer that from the perspective of I never imagined myself as a child having a life where I was able to be who like completely who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And what's been so amazing about where I will say this to people who are listening, who maybe aren't at this level or this point in their own kind of coming out experience is I realized so many more other amazing parts of myself when I was able to kind of go through the journey of accepting myself. I realized the way that I just said that maybe puts blame on other people and that's not it. But there are so many wonderful parts of me. And when I was able to like move through the process of like forgiving my family and going to therapy and healing all the bullshit that I went through and all of that, I was able to discover so much more of myself. And so now I used to hate social media because I felt like I still kind of do, (laughs) but uh, because it reminds me of being that like 20 year old in front of people all the time, but I wasn't myself then. There's not a day that I don't post where I'm like, that was dumb. That was stupid. You're not being yourself. People are going to know more about you than you want them to know. Like that sort of thing goes through my mind, but I find that that gets easier and, and kind of doing this podcast is also just existing, right? Being a queer black speech pathologist. I literally can't name more than five queer black speech pathologists that I know of any gender, of any level of queerness. Like I just don't know them. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't mind being that person. That's great. And that I get to be that person has been really awesome. And I've had people reach out to me as you, y'all have had reach out to you as a result of your show. So I don't know. It's just, what does it mean? It just means feeling comfortable with being me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. 
it sounds like, you know, just talking about your journey and what you've been through throughout your life, that it was when you started to accept yourself that you blossomed. And it sounds like the world just opened yeah, up your path yeah. for you, right? It's crazy. It, I mean, really, truly crazy. Yeah. It's difficult for me to put in words. And I don't think I could. Maybe if I was like an incredible songwriter or an artist or some sort of like created some or sort of Or a musician. Or a musician. It would be difficult for me to <laughs> adequately describe how awful I felt for so long. And I don't know that I identify with the term like suicidal or wanting to injure myself. But there were so many moments where I didn't want to wake up. And there were so many situations where I would just be holding my breath, not wanting to exhale or an inhale because that meant feeling something. There were so many days that I would spend wrapped up in my blanket. I didn't eat. It's wild, all the ways in which my life was a disaster. That Now I look at it and I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. This life is so much more than I could have imagined. And I want more not only for myself, but I want this for everyone. Right. And that has been kind of one of the most redeeming parts of going through what I went through, is it allowed me to experience a level of shitty that I didn't know was possible, but then it also allows me to see in which ways the world can be better. Right. I think you said it perfectly when you talked about your meeting with that laryngologist at the beginning. It's not about acceptance. It's about affirming. And your experience has kind of been about affirming your own existence to this point. And that's kind of how that whole proud professional thing works its way in. Would you say that being part of the queer community has made you a better SLP? I this just thought about one. that I was right now. About not on the list. <laughs> That's a really good was, one, Hector. <laughs> I was actually, I'm hoping you would ask me this. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so I was thinking about this because I think people go through really hard things. And there is a level of empathy, I believe, that I am able to kind of tap into and access as a result of being through what I've been through and identifying as a part of a marginalized community. That when those shitty things happen to people, I'm I'm so sorry for cursing so much. Jeez, you can do the little, like funny bleep outs or something. <laughs> we'll do like phonetics, like your IPA. Shitty. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but when people are going through those things, there are moments where I can sit in front of someone and be like, I'm really sorry you're going through that. And mm -hmm. I'm not going through what you're going through. I actually have not had a voice disorder that kept me from talking. And I have never lost my job because of my voice. And I have not lost income because of my voice. But there are a lot of situations in which I felt like tomorrow was impossible. And I know you're in that position too. And so it's allowed me the opportunity to just like sit in front of someone and like lay it all out on the table. And it doesn't have to be okay. And it doesn't have to be better. And I cannot solve your problems. But in this space, we are going to make it okay right? We're just going to lay it all out there and you can cry and we can laugh and then we can cry some more. There's lots of crying in what I do and more crying. And that's okay. That's like part of being a human. Welcome to the human experience, right? And I'm here. So let me know what you need, even if it has nothing to do with speech pathology. Let me know what you need. That's what my voice therapy teacher always said was like, it's more about counseling and crying in voice than it is about actual <laughs> voice therapy, because it's like one of the most personal ways you communicate is, yeah. you know, your identity it with is. your voice. Yeah. And so to have difficulty with it is, you know, it's very earth shaking for them. It's your identity. It could be your livelihood. Mm -hmm. Heck, it's our livelihood, oh. right? Can you imagine being a speech therapist and not being able to talk? No. Yeah. <laughs> I would quit. <laughs> It's interesting how we can frame it that way, because I mean, for those of you that aren't part of the queer community, I want you to get the message that it, you don't have to live the queer experience to understand empathy. 
you know, right. like that just happens to be the lens that we happen to, to yeah. have had, but you could go through anything and take any experience and say, Oh man, that fucking sucked. Like, and say, you know, and then again, I'll bring it back to our good old Brene Brown. Like empathy is not feeling for you. It's feeling with you. And so being there with somebody is the most important thing you can do. I will kind of circle back. One of my most recent favorite Brene Brown references would have to be the TED Talk that she did. And if any of you haven't listened to that. (laughs) Which one? Okay, so (laughs) I know I'm doing a bad job. Okay, the power of vulnerability. Mm. And in that, of the many, many wonderful things she shares, she talks about how when you are going through something that's difficult, when we are dealing with things that feel insurmountable, often we we do our best to shut off the bad feelings. We do our best to turn off the things that are uncomfortable. But when we do that, we also often turn off the best parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, kind of to circle back to Natalie, what you had briefly mentioned about my own story was I was turning off the best parts of me to not feel the hurt of not being myself. Yeah. And so as I continue to grow, I'm like, I can't believe that life has already been this fulfilling and I'm only 30. And I've been able to look at life that way, right? Like there's so much more to this thing and there's so much more life and love and people and joy to experience that I want to keep going on that journey. You can't selectively numb, as she says. Yeah. You just kind of have to like take it all. Unfortunately. <laughs> right? I know. You're like, damn it. But oh, I know you're listening. But fuck, that sucks. <laughs> Especially 2020. <laughs> We've talked a lot about visibility and how there's just so many more of us out there who aren't part of the community. So what does allyship look like to you? And what would you like for it to be if it isn't what you want right now? I think through things, as you had mentioned before, that kind of idea of lenses, and certainly summer 2020 was interesting experience as a person of color living in America. And there was some nice displays <laughs> of representation and visibility given in many different levels from social media to actually, you know, ASHA and our field demonstrating a level of awareness in which they placed Black people in front. <laughs> More of that would be cool. I always think it's like really cool to see people from minority populations like normalize their expertise and not just their marginalization. Mm. And so I would love to see people from different minority groups giving talks that have nothing to do with their minority group. Um, (laughs) Even though I think it's helpful and it's beneficial. I'm also like, I would love to go to ASHA and see, you know, like a panel of black women, you know, giving a talk on child language just as much as they would give a talk on being black women as speech pathologists and not tokenizing our experiences, but rather just celebrating who we are in what we do and what we kind of bring from a professional standpoint. So I think we can do better a job of that as a field, certainly. So I might not have answered your question as directly as I would want to. So, I mean, it kind of combined that. (laughs) (laughs) It combined my next question too, which was, what do you foresee for our field? But it basically is just like allowing the platform to be shared. I don't need you to advocate for me. I need you to give me the damn mic. You know, like, that's kind of what we want. I often, you know, think about that in that way. So often it's, you know, how do I find the best way of saying this? I think that as a queer person, that as a person of color, I am bringing things to therapy. 
that are special and particular to me because of those things, right? If we believe that you're bringing yourself to therapy, then I am bringing those things as well. And so when the question gets asked, what makes you such a good therapist? Or why are you so successful as a voice therapist? Or how do you get to work with, you know, all these famous people that come into your clinic? I don't know, but I know a part of that is because of my identity as a queer person and my identity as a person of color and my identity in all these different intersections. I have to bring that to what I do. And that makes me the therapist that I am. It is not kind of in spite of those things. I don't have to set those things aside when I walk into the room, but I'm bringing that part of myself to the table. And I would love to see those intersections highlighted more and celebrated more than they are. I love that. I want to know, are you still singing or playing music? You know, pre-COVID... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I got pretty heavily back into studying music when I moved here to Houston. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I sing with Houston Grand Opera. And then, uh, yeah, Fun. it was, that's a neat opportunity. And then also just kind of singing and gigging around town has been really fun. I've kind of fallen back in love with that. I hated it for a while. Uh, I think when you study something for mm-hmm. so long, you just like get me away from this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I found joy in that again. And it's actually made me a better, definitely by far has made me a significantly better kind of speech pathologist, specifically in voice disorders mm-hmm. by practicing and working at the level that I do. I often kind of like, do I want to do this professionally again? I don't think I do, but it's nice to kind of dream those dreams and eh, maybe who knows. So I guess I'm just curious as a fellow musician about your experience as a queer person in the music community. Have you found any wisdom there or any similarities between your work as a speech pathologist and your work as a musician as a queer person? Yeah, I've always seen the the kind of music world and especially when it comes to like, you know, formal music programs in undergrad. I mean, it is very common to identify as (laughs) queer (laughs) in any sort of formal that's been my experience too. Uh, program. Um, so that has been like a really mm-hmm. cool opportunity and life to step into. I do not actually lead with what I do professionally. So I think for the first couple months being at HGO and certainly singing and being here in Houston, I, I don't tell people that. So if I'm meeting new people and kind of showing up for work, what do you do? Oh, I work at the hospital, you know, whatever. Because people get weird when they're like, oh, you're the one that scopes me and looks at my vocal fold. So You're judging my voice yeah, right and now. I don't, I don't do that. I I very much so like to, as much as I can, turn off my work brain at like max at 10 or 12 hours a day. So (laughs) good for you. (laughs) Try, 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 try. That's amazing. I was going to ask if you're going to sing for us, but we don't have to do that. But I do have a nerdy music speechy question. I asked Natalie if I could ask this earlier. So when people say, you know, they warm up with like red leather, yellow leather from a speech background, what the hell does that do? You know, I don't know. (laughs) It probably has nothing to do with Um, your vocal folds. I'll say that. Is it like diadokinesis? Like, are we doing Mm. DDK here? That's about it. Um, (laughs) Maybe some lingual awareness. I got to be honest. I don't know. So we, when patients come in, they're like, oh, I do this, this, this. And I drink this thing. And I steam this thing. And I smoke this thing. I'm like, sounds good. Go off, right? It's not helping you. Might be hurting you, but we're going to let it go. (laughs) So singers are weird. I'm just wondering if you have any final words of wisdom for the queer SLPs out there or the pre-queer SLPs. Uh, One thing that I found is that I think many queer professionals understand what it's like. Many out queer professionals understand what it's like to not be out. And Mm -hmm. I just actually gave a talk on mentorship at a conference as an early career person like, how do we figure out this world? You know, you need mentorship, you need people who've been there before to kind of help guide that. And I would say the same is probably true. 
I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, you know, certainly social media is a great way to reach out to people and feel free to reach out to me. But there are so many people that have been through this journey. And I promise you there are more people out there who would be happy to share advice and listen and talk than there are people who would say no thanks. So find people, reach out to people if that feels safe and comfortable for you. There are a few groups on Facebook that are really awesome, that are full of queer identifying speech pathologists of different levels and different identities. Certainly Instagram is a place where you can find some people. Look at the comments of the Queer SLP Instagram page. <laughs> talk right. to people there. there are people out there and I can promise you they, they want you to feel as free and open and, and wonderful as we do. But yeah. no pressure. You know, I've, we've talked a little bit about on this podcast that it's also okay if you don't feel safe being out. As I mean, SLP. I often think what would have happened if I wasn't more or less outed, right? Like I was 20 credits away. I had justified kind of doing everything that I was doing and felt like that was a fair trade-off. And for some people that is true, right? They're in positions where they have to make mm-hmm. money and their employment rests on their ability to either be close to their family or be in a safe environment. And so that's what that means. Queerness, I don't think is necessarily practical. I wish it was, but this world wasn't built for people who don't identify with a majority. Mm -hmm. And that applies to many, many different intersections. So it's a tough conversation to have, but there's support for whatever level you're at. And we want to affirm that for sure. So Maurice, thank you so much for joining us on the Queer SLP. Tell us where we can reach you. Yeah, I'm on the internet. I'm on (laughs) Instagram as Maurice Goodwin. So you can search me there. And then, I mean, if you can find me on Facebook, although I'm not as active there, sure, feel free to do that. I do try and respond as much as I can. Sometimes I forget. And if I do, just like bug me and I'll I'll actually respond. So Awesome. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Queer SLP. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening to this show. Tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast and make sure to tell them how to find us. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP. 